Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. Complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. And we are in the second part. Second part. Right? Great Burrow King. The, the, the legend. The legend. The, uh, and y'all, thank you for your response to the first edition. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it because absolutely you know, Jim does all the research, and we have an idea what we're going to tell. But then we just got into it, and it was so much in in coverage on yes. Pearl and so much stuff that came up. Uh, but it was all fire. So when we left last time, Woody Everton, we were getting into some little stories that we like to tell of Burl Kane, and one of the the amazing relationships that he had. And one of his favorite people on earth really was Billy Cannon. Right. And a uh, super duper episode of Louisiana legend, the Heisman, only Heisman trophy winner until uh, Joe Burrow. But there's a rise and fall of Billy Cannon, uh, ultimately the redemption. Yes. And, and the, which came because uh, he was afforded that opportunity by Burl Kane in bloody Angola. That's right. And you know, it, he has consistently in his past interviews said that that was the best hire he ever made was hiring Billy Cannon as the orthodontist at Angola. Right behind me. Right behind. <laughs> yeah. Right behind Woody Everton. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So back in 90, 1997, Cannon, y'all was, he was broke. He was looking for a job, and obviously this guy being the Heisman Trophy winner, right. you ain't got to look for it. He'd been to prison and, yeah. and everything else. and yeah, A little bit of a trouble past, but, uh, you know, Warden Kane and Billy knew each other, and there's a quote of Warden Kane's that I'm going to read you, and it says, prisoners are chronic complainers, but they don't complain about the dental part of the prison. Right. Dr. Cannon has the leadership skills. He's compassionate. He diffuses tension. I give him free reign and say, if it's broke, fix it. Right. Those of you who haven't listened to the Billy Cannon episode or don't know about him, he was a dentist. Yeah. And, and when he when he got into his trouble and he came out, couldn't get a job, and Burl took the chance and hired him. He came in and just absolutely was awesome. 
Uh, and that's what Burl's saying here about the dental part. And the prisoners complain about it a lot, but they don't complain about that. Billy basically did what Burl did. And Billy can't let the prison, the convicts know, hey, I'm in charge, but I'm going to treat you like a human being. Right. Yeah. Um, I, not treating you for what you're in for, treating you like shit because you're a convicted murderer or whatever. I'm going to fix your teeth. And uh, Burl Kane, being the leader that he is, took notice of that and ultimately promoted Billy Cannon to be over all the medical yeah. at Angola, which is huge. I and mean, now you have a dentist that's overseeing everything. You know why? Because Burl knew that Billy Cannon was going to lead by example, and he was going to put people in positions underneath him, just like Burl had, that were going to take care of business. That's right. That's right. And in a major responsibility that Billy Cannon just hit it out of the park right. with That's that. Yeah. They were they became you know obviously very close, so close in fact that uh, Burl Cannon was chosen as one of the speakers at Billy Cannon's funeral. Right. And he tells a story in, that is very touching. He actually wore a ring to that funeral that was a championship ring that the football team at Angola earned. They actually play football yeah, against other presidents. Yeah. yeah, so he had that ring on at the funeral, and he tells a story of how he got that ring, and we're going to play that clip right here. Too short anyway. I was playing basketball. But anyway, uh, I'm wearing this ring today. This ring is a crunch bowl ring for Angola. But we got Dr. Cannon on board. We have a football league. And so we had the best coach going, guys. Jojo, he was cool. And so we would play DCI and hunt, but we won every time because he had so many tricks up his sleeve. We didn't, we didn't, we just did it. So I got the ring. All the players got one of the rings. He got, he had to, he had to stroke while he was there at work during the day. And, uh, so Dr. Lavosphere called me and said, man, we got to get Dr. We got to get Dr. Cannon to Baton Rouge real quick. We think he's having a stroke. And so we need to ship him quick. And I said, okay, well, what ambulance you taking him in? Because I knew the ambulances, some of them weren't in very good shape because we had been having some problems and, you know, no money to buy any new ambulances and so forth. And he said, well, we're going to take him in the best one we have. And I said, well, okay, well, that's not good enough. Put him in the best one you have and then get another ambulance and follow that ambulance because I can't afford for Dr. Cannon to die on the side of the road. So that kind of tells you how, uh, in that clip you just heard, how close they were and how much respect he had. Best hire outside of Woody Everton he ever made. Pretty amazing (laughs) story, right? Just absolutely both of them are legends. Uh, um, it's just that's just beautiful. Really is, and and uh, so a lot of people have have messaged us since the first episode, and they wanted to know about some Katrina information. Oh my God, were the worst time. I had PTSD about two things, 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, and it's the worst time to be in any type of law enforcement or corrections ever. Yeah. I guess maybe since COVID, but I was out uh, when that happened. But just horrible times. Really was. And and for those of you that, uh, well, I'm sure everybody's familiar with Katrina, one of the worst hurricanes of all time. But one of the things you might not have thought of was the effect that had on the prisons in New Orleans. Because New Orleans flooded. Yeah, well, you know, Katrina wasn't the direct calls of all the misery in New Orleans is when the levees broke yeah. the, the, the days afterwards. And now Orleans Parish Prison uh, 
was not only the, the, the largest in the state of Louisiana, being a Paris prison-wise, is also consistently ranked as the worst central lockup in the United States of America. They, they just studies on it. Yeah. Worse than New York or Los Angeles or anywhere else. I'm talking about I've been in this place on murder cases and stuff, and they, they lost my people. Wow. And, and and it just absolutely stunk. It was just horrible and full of some of the worst of the worst. And then, you know, drunks and stuff too. But all these murderers and everything else that they call it, they were housed there. Right. I mean, this place is massive. Yeah. Yeah, they actually – I remember you telling that story yeah. about the, the prisoner that actually yeah, got but, lost. But when, when the levees broke, they, it got flooded too. And, yeah. and like, I'm talking about like – could have drowned them flood that's how high the water was that's right and if you're the state of louisiana and you've got problems like this and you've got prisoners that you have to deal with who you gonna call not ghostbusters yeah that's right because then their their job is you're responsible for them you your agency or whoever incarcerated them your one job is to keep them alive and healthy that's right so they called burl kane they called louisiana state penitentiary they called bloody angola Mm -hmm. and they said we've got a jail over here that is about to go completely underwater we've got uh hundreds of prisoners and nowhere to put them help and burl kane helped and the first thing he had to do was obviously drive and he went up there himself y'all he went up there with obviously a, a lot of uh, backup, right? And they assess the situation. And this next clip I'm going to play you is Burl Kane, and he is talking about a very scary situation when he first approached the Orleans Parish Jail to assess the situation and get these prisoners to safety. It's right here. One real scary situation we had was is in the jail. They said that the uh, that they had breached the armory on the ninth floor, and so. We went and assaulted the ninth floor, but we thought we were assaulting an area that had guns and inmates were armed. But we had to do it anyway because we couldn't let them out. Nobody escaped from us from that jail. There were all kind of rumors people escaped. If they did, they got away before we got there. I remember they had torn, and I went through the jail and looked at it. It was devastating. They tore it all apart. The deputies were on the first floor in the mezzanine and kind of like a porch thing all the way around it. And their families were there, too, and there was no food and water. And so they had some MREs, and they gave the MREs to the wives and the children, and they didn't eat. There was no food to give the people in the jail. And so they didn't have any. They ran out. And so the inmates were really riding, and they were tearing the place apart. At nighttime, it would be dark, but there was nobody up there with them to speak of in the area we were. In some of the jails, there was. But in the one right over the... Uh, where the sheriff's office is, the main building, there there wasn't. And so they, they would, the walls were center block, but they didn't put concrete in them when they built it. And they would knock through the blocks and with the fire extinguisher, using them as battering rams, and get into the next cells. So they all got together. And I'm sure a lot of really bad things happened in there at night with the predators and the prey, you know, and so forth. And we heard those stories. But they were, had gotten all the way down to the door, to where the to the bottom floor, and there was one door separating them from the uh, from getting out and getting in with all the deputies. Now they had the guns down there; it'd have been real a bad scene. So with the tag team, 
When we opened that door, we were there with the bean bags, and they shot the first two or three that tried to get out with the bean bags, and they thought, you know, they'd knock you down, so the rest of them thought they were shooting them with real live bullets. So they all turned around and scrambled back up the stairs and ran back up to where the jail was, so that turned them around, and then we could orderly bring those on out. That was a scary thing in there, two scary deals in there. Consequently, the Army hadn't been breached, and they weren't armed, but we had the information they were. And they would burn fires, and they would, and you'd see smoke coming out the window, and they'd hang out flags and banners, help me, save me. And I remember Andrew Joseph, one of our inmates, was there. When Warden Benoit got there, Andrew Joseph just fell in his arms. He was so glad to see him and rescued him. You'd never think somebody would be so glad to come back to Angola. All right, so y'all, another great clip, but the what do you do, right? So Burl Gasseri's career corrections um he assessed the situation and he's like mm, you know what do we do I mean, no problems only solutions he finds a greyhound bus station which is which is a pretty big establishment in yeah. itself and you also and it's one of the areas that wasn't flooded they constructed it uh, and and they made it one of the top priorities to build new Orleans and make turn it into a makeshift prison now here's the deal not only do you have all these people that are housed you have all these people that are still committing crime. That's right. right. And they got to be locked up somewhere. So he was genius in, and they came in, they built it. There were um, 16 cages of chain link fencing that were topped with the Constantina razor wire that were erected at the bus stop under the canopies to house up to 700 people. And the work was done by convicts from That's right, Angola under the direction of Burl Kane. Now, the after the storm, most of the suspects have been arrested for looting or curfew violations, vehicle thefts, intoxication, resistant arrest. And the, every every department had that problem. But in, in New Orleans, it wasn't just in OPD. OPP housed all of Jefferson Parish mm-hmm. and inmates and, and all these other small uh, outlying communities. It could be St. Bernard, you name it. They were all flooded. That's right. And they had nowhere to go, and people were still being arrested. And so Burl brought in the convicts, and being the professional that he is, he built it up, right? Made a jail. Right, right out it, in the middle of New Orleans. Out of a Greyhound bus station. And yeah. by September 8th, nine inmates had been incarcerated for attempted murder. Dang. And outdoor cage could hold up to 45 people. There was no furniture, and inmates had to sleep on the asphalt ground of the bus station without mattresses and had to use an open, portable toilet. Now, what they're not telling you about here is all this water is around, and when it recedes, it stinks. The mosquitoes would have been saber-toothed rock breakers. The oh, Louisiana yeah. State Bird tearing their ass <laughs> up, and they're sleeping on on the blacktop. And But Burl's like, hey, we didn't promise you. A soft mattress. That's right. I promised you that I was going to keep you alive. Yeah, and they had it better than than some people who weren't criminals who yeah. you know flooded, lost right. everything, and were sitting and on their roofs, died in their attics. Yeah, but the food consisted of MREs, y'all meals ready to eat, or or, um, or military issued meals, which would have came through the National Guard and ultimately FEMA when they rolled in. Um, I actually not, don't mind those, by the way. Those are those. Way I don't I mind in, those. <laughs> when I was in, it was a pork dehydrated patties. You had to add water to, and there was no heater elements and all. Yeah. And nowadays, they got M and M's and Tabasco, oh, yeah. heater packs, and everything, I mean, everything. else, right? But um, at nighttime, you know, 
you're going to escape, right? But the facility was fully lit at night with electric power being generated by an Amtrak engine, engine right? From, yeah. from a locomotive engine that ran 24 hours a day. Another yeah. genius idea. Innovative. Right? There was no power. Nobody yeah. else had it. That I mean, they were dark for a long time in the city of New Orleans. Um, inmates were guarded by correction officers from bloody Angola, Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. And at least five mercenary companies were enlisted to round up prisoners and keep the jail running. How about that? That's yeah, Back then in the day, that would have been Black Hawk and, and all of them before they got in trouble, y'all. But it, they they were working off federal grants, but ultimately they would have fallen under supervision of Burl Kane. Um, it's just crazy. But they kept the jail running, and on – the outside of the camp was protected by the, the Louisiana National Guard, right? Yeah. So, so this was a, a yellow open air functioning prison right. in the middle of just this nightmare that was the aftermath of Katrina. And they even had a processing center where they would photograph and mm-hmm. fingerprint these prisoners. Right. Uh, they had a public defender, believe it or not. Uh, and he wouldn't do like they do now where you get this individual advice. He comes yeah, in and he talks your, to you, learns about your case. Or whatever, yeah. yeah. You're, you're basically standing in a line and he says, what did you do? And okay, here's how you're going to plead. And it was, it was, a let's just say a very antiquated version of what, right. what you would get yeah. these days. And, and rightfully so. Considering like the guilty or not guilty. And they stuck your ass back in the cage. That's right. Because the court systems weren't running. The courthouses were destroyed. Everything was destroyed. People there's not a gas station open okay there for a long time almost 30 days they didn't let anybody back into the city yeah yeah and so it was it was a unique time that burl came was was kind of leading uh the charge in the first inmates uh actually went into that prison on september 5th of 2005 and and, uh, you know, it's about six weeks that that prison was in existence. And they called it Camp Greyhound. Right. And believe it or not, Warden Kane was the warden of Camp yep. Greyhound. So yep. he, a lot of people don't realize he was the warden of two, two prisons, prisons at the same the time. Probably never do that, right? I yeah. Think. All right. And, and y'all, so I'm telling you, when the levees broke and every, it was rescue mode and then getting everybody out of city mode and they built this prison very quickly, uh, and like Jim told you about the the public defender, you you pled guilty or not guilty, and the only option was, I mean, if if you agreed to plead guilty and agreed to community service, um, then they would let you out. But or if you didn't, you were sent to a, a more permanent facility at a later date, and you had to wait a minimum of twenty one days for your case to get processed further. Um, the First inmates were placed into the facility on Monday, September 5th. Now, the storm happened on the 29th, so there were to the 30th, and the levees breaking just a couple of days before that. So that's how fast they did this. Uh, the, the inmates were clad in prison orange, and they they weren't allowed to notify the relatives or their lawyers where they were. There were no phone calls um, were permitted, and a report by the Washington Times from September the 9th, y'all, this is just like 10 days later of 2005 indicated over 220 people suspected of looting were at K Camp Greyhound at the time. These are the idiots that you, before they kicked everybody out of the city, you see running out with the big screen TVs and there's no power. Yeah, and uh, it, it was like a war zone in Kosovo or something. And, and I, we were the first 
SWAT team with our boots on the ground before Louisiana State Police and got called back because of stuff that was happening here. But I remember one of the um, Sheriff Willie Graves calling us out, and they were one of the last load of buses were coming, and we had these, I used to call them refugee centers, but that's what they were, evacuation centers, and they were guarded and everything. We had to run them uh, 24 hours a day, and they were feeding them and everything else. But we knew there were bus loads coming in out of New Orleans, the last bus loads in uh, Willie had um, information that they were, it was full of criminals. Yeah. The last people to leave were the criminals. And so we met the buses and they were getting off. And one guy had a wrist full uh, on both arms of tag hours and Rolexes on him, still with the price tags on him. And Willie told him, said, get back on the bus or you're going to my jail. And he told the bus driver, drive him to the next parish. Right. Yeah, so, but Burl, <laughs> matter here. Uh, the, the, the ones that they got their hands on, he locked him up in Camp Greyhound. That's it. He, he didn't want to go to Camp Greyhound. Yeah. So we're going to play a clip of Warden Kane. He was interviewed regarding Camp Greyhound, and I think you're going to enjoy it, and it's right here. New Orleans now has a place to put looters when they arrest them. The Louisiana State Penitentiary helped set up a makeshift jail in the bus and train station. NPR's Jeff Brady toured Camp Greyhound. Warden Burl Kane says when police arrived to open up the jail at the Union Passenger Terminal last weekend, they found people inside stealing. We ran the looters away, and Amtrak was really happy, and so was Greyhound, because they have a safe here with money in it. Kane came down after the hurricane hit. He's the warden of the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. He echoes the sentiments of a hand-drawn cardboard sign on the front door that reads, We are taking New Orleans back. As city officials try all kinds of things to restore order, Kane says his Camp Greyhound is making the city more secure. And this is the one thing that works, to have a jail. They realize you can't have security till you have a jail. And therefore, then, we've arrested over 233 people that have been brought through here. One shot at a helicopter. One of the guys had to shoot out with the police. But they got them off the street so we could have reconstruction. Without a jail, no reconstruction. Kane says they didn't even have to travel to find one of the prisoners. The first guy we caught here come driving up to buy a bus ticket in a stolen car, and he bought a ticket all right, right back there to that screened area. Out back, the first noise you hear is a loud Amtrak locomotive. It runs 24 hours a day and provides electricity to the jail. But what you see first out here is the dozen or so cages. They're about 15 foot square and made of chain link with razor wire on top. Inside, there are no chairs or benches. Prisoners sit on the cement floor. They're exposed to the 95 degree heat and the high humidity. But Kane says prisoners won't stay here more than 24 hours before they're shipped to a more permanent facility where court can be held. That place has to be more comfortable than Camp Greyhound. They got the porta potties in there. We give everybody plenty of water in the bottle. They have bottled water. We don't have water hose or nothing. We do it right. And we give them MREs. And they get MREs three meals a day. If you don't have any shoes, we give you some sandals. We want you to have shoes on. And we scrub it down every morning. Cleanliness is a concern. The place reeks of disinfectant, and inmates swab the floors. Dr. Joseph Gotro says he's on the lookout for a variety of illnesses. A lot of these people that are coming in probably have not been vaccinated for years. So we have to look for pharyngitis, diarrhea, gastritis, vomiting, fever. Anyone who's sick doesn't stay here long. They're shipped out so diseases don't spread to the other prisoners. 
Step over to the entrance of Camp Greyhound and you see this isn't just a jail, but a miniature justice center is being put together. Walter Leger is taping up a sign on a shop window. It announces a temporary office for the Orleans Parish District Attorney. We're um, accepting evidence from people that are arrested and property as they're processed through the booking procedure here. And you're doing it in a gift shop there, it looks like. It, yeah, it looks like this gift shop was partially looted and we've taken over some of the office space and, and we're setting up files in there. The building certainly isn't as secure as a typical jail. Two banks of glass doors on the sides of the building remain unlocked. Warden Kane says they just don't have a way to lock them. Are you worried about security here? Because No, I got security. Look at that automatic rival out the front door. Look all of you, see them all around. I got everywhere security. I got shotguns on the roof when we load the buses, and uh, we're well secured. That's, that's the National Guard out there, and the Louisiana State Police is in the front. Man, we rock and roll. See that rifle right there? Kane says he has just about everything he needs to run a jail right now. He's even planning to have air conditioning soon for the staff, not the prisoners. And he says Camp Greyhound will do until the flooded jail is repaired and can once again house prisoners. Jeff Brady, NPR News, New Orleans. Okay, so that kind of gives you an idea of that situation with Hurricane Katrina and Burl Kane's, uh, you know, just amazing leadership ability right. on that front. Now, in the first episode, we told you about his first execution he ever did at Angola and how he regretted a lot about that situation. And he gave the thumbs down. Yeah, and he just he'd only hated been on that. jobs a short time. Yeah, three months. Yeah, three months. Yeah. So he just knew what the old protocol was and what he was supposed to do. But after he did it, his mama told him, you know, she told his mama, hey, that really bothers me. And she's like, it's your job. That's right. Those people are prepared to meet their savior. Amen. And so he had that situation come up again. And there was an inmate, uh, condemned inmate by the name of Antonio James. And Antonio James' execution was publicly um, uh, known and covered, actually, by a documentary company that worked for ABC. So it was a big deal. It was all on, you know, the execution itself was not on video, but the prior, the lead up to was this, this particular documentary actually went up for an Oscar. It was, it was that good. Uh, it's called the execution of Antonio James and warden came was determined. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seen more health issues with the dog's joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do this same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Now, my dog, Phoebe, is the queen of our house, and I can tell you that her health is extremely important to us. She is a part of our family. I watched the video, y'all, and I was amazed by the things I 
didn't know that could impact your dog's health. This 20-minute video is packed full of tips that I've already started with my dog, Phoebe. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin and coat. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash bloodyangola and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash bloodyangola. That it was not going to happen the same way it did the first time as far as he was concerned. He was, right. you know, a man of faith. And so in his book, he described uh, that situation. And we're just going to we're going to quote uh, Warden Kane here and just just really get you an in-depth look at exactly what he was feeling at that time. He says at the date of his death row drawing near, Antonio asked the warden a lot of questions. How is it when you die? What happens to your soul? And how does it really work? Cain listened, taking the man's questions seriously. He quoted Jesus's words to the thief hanging next to him on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He also told Antonio what Billy Graham in his book, Angels, said about the celestial beings and how they escort the redeemed souls into, into heaven. Antonio asked Cain if he would hold his hand when the time came so he would be connected to this earth while he reached out into heaven with the other hand, and Cain promised he would. Yeah, and so y'all, on afternoon of March 1st, 2000, um, the condemned man and his family gathered in the visitor's room in the death house for the final farewell. They sat around a long table, laughing and reminiscing and eventually Burl came walked in and the families shifted their attention to him and Burl spoke briefly he said thank you for coming so Antonio can say goodbye I know how much he appreciates it he did not add nor did it need to be said that he applauded Antonio's mother siblings, nieces, and nephews for being brave enough to offer unconditional love to him at the time he needed it most. And as he left, Cain stared at James, who acknowledged his glance. I'll be seeing you shortly, Burl said. And it was time for Antonio to prepare for his last meal. Burl Cain had done his best to prepare Antonio and James for death, and the two men had spoken often about this. what was about to happen, and including that day. And Burl had explained what would happen when he would arrive to escort James from his holding cell to the death chamber, and he spared no detail, believing that James would be helped by knowing exactly how things would play out. And, and that makes sense, because if you're in that hyper, almost panic state, if you, you're aware of what's going to happen and nothing deviates, then, it, you know, it's no, you're not going to buck up and fight and, and, and flip out. Right. That's right. And, and he, look, he cared, you know, he was in that documentary. If you haven't seen it, I recommend watching it, but he, he, he made no bones about the fact that he cared about this guy. Yeah. And, uh, and it was very important to him that spiritually he right. was ready. Yeah. He cared about him spiritually. And there's no doubt that, you know, again, Burrow wasn't there to punish them for what they did on the outside, but there's no doubt that Burl 
had his jacket and uh, his file and they knew the heinous crimes that he had committed. Yeah. So he goes into this description and he described the concrete block death chamber and the gurney positioned diagonally inside the room. He told James how a guard team specially trained and rehearsed would buckle him securely to the gurney and how an EMT would insert a needle into each of his arms. Kane explained that only one needle would be needed to administer the lethal combination of drugs, but the second one would be in place in case the first one failed. Kane made it clear that he would try as hard as he could to ease James' departure from the world. The inmate, he listened intently. Uh, He took everything in without interrupting, almost as though the procedure were meant to help not put him to death. Uh, The calm expression on his face did not change as Kane explained what was going to happen. Any more questions? The warden asked. Antonio shook his head. Let's pray together, then, Kane said. And Antonio said he appreciated that very much. Yep. And then Earl Kane reached out and took a hold of Antonio's hand. And as he whispered, Dear God, you're about to welcome Antonio into your kingdom. Help him to keep his focus entirely on you during the coming hours. Help him to realize that he is about to come into the presence of Jesus. And, Father, we just pray for the victim's family that you'll be with them and comfort them. So he never forgot about the victims. That's know? right. But I just I think it's an honorable thing to do. And he came out of it from his first one. That's know? right. Uh, and as we told you, an a- ABC television crew, they were there. They filmed The Last Walk. And, you know, sometimes when these prisoners come out, they, they're panicking. They're going yeah. to they're, – they're being sentenced to yeah, death here, a, and it's about to happen. The team is, is trained for any and all possibilities. They look, y'all, they get – whether it's a trustee or another correctional officer, and they train for, you know, months on ends before these. For every, Everybody's got a job. One person grabbing this hand, one person grabbing that hand. And when they're taking them out, a lot of times they basically have to skull drag them down the hallway. They're yeah. kicking and screaming. But Antonio – was able to walk on his own. Yeah, he didn't need assistance. Uh, Warden Daryl Vanay, who was his spiritual advisor, were, were also accompanying him. And when James entered the death row chamber, he paused at the microphone and he addressed the witnesses. He told the victim's family he was sorry and asked for forgiveness. He turned, looked at the gurney, walked over to it, sat, and laid down. Wow, that's crazy, right? And that's when the cert team um, – the efficient strap down team, as, as they call them, um, did their work in 90 seconds, securing the leather straps around uh, James's ankles, thighs, abdomen, chest, and shoulders. Then the executioner began searching for a vein in his right arm into which he could insert the needle. And, and Antonio was so calm, his pulse so low, that we couldn't locate a suitable vein, even when he made a fist, Kane said. Wow. Well, yeah. And he apologized for making things difficult. The EMT slapped his arm to see if he could raise a vein, and that didn't work. So finally, they inserted the needle into his leg. Wow. And, you know, they, they completed all that. Kane took a hold of Antonio's hand, stared into his eyes, and he said, Antonio, the chariot is here. Get ready for the ride. Here we go. You're about to see Jesus. That's love. And then a gesture that um, the warden took to mean that he fully understood and expected to see the Lord. James squeezed Kane's hand, and Burl turned toward the one-way glass. 
He could not see the executioner who would administer the drugs, but he could give the signal, and he did. Cain nodded. Yeah, and he, he wasn't doing the thumbs right, down instead of doing the stuff the anymore. Down. The process irrevocable began in a moment. The first drug began to enter Antonio James, and he breathed two deep breaths. Then he relaxed his grip on Burl's hand, and he closed his eyes for the last time. And the lawyers all had tears in their eyes. And later that night in front of the TV cameras, Burl would announce that we have sent Antonio James to his final judgment. But Burrow purposely avoided using the words execution and death. I think that's I think that's, that's, that's really classy, huge. Yeah. Um you know, he was not trying to sensationalize that any any more than it was. He always remembered the victims. But more importantly, I think in that whole situation that he felt okay with himself right. on that yeah, one yeah. versus the first he, time around. I mean, like his mama told him, it's your duty as a Christian to make it the best that you can and make sure they know what's um, about to happen and, and, and they have a chance at least to meet the Savior. A hundred percent. And so we're going to talk about another program uh, now that Burl Kane instituted that, in my opinion, one of the certainly top two or three programs, there's so many he did there, but it's the hospice program. Yep. Under Burrow and, and it's supposed to be one of the best in, in the world. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, they had a hospice program prior to him being there, but it was very antiquated, really non-successful. Uh, but when Burl Kane started in Angola, he was approached by members of the Lifers Association, no affiliation with Real Life or Crime Lifers, right. yeah. uh, and the HIV, which HIV at that time was, was still very huge. Uh, the HIV peer education team concerned about the increase in the number of inmate deaths due to natural causes. Now, y'all got to remember, as Woody's told you, as I've told you many times, these guys that go to Angola, they die there right. typically. And right. so Angola's population was aging. Right. Tons of, of 65 to 75 year old inmates that really uh, required hospice care for many reasons. Just because you're locked up doesn't mean you don't get cancer, dementia. That's right. Everything that that our elderly, free elderly people get. That's right. So they had a problem. And, of course, if you've learned anything so far during during the series, it's that Kane was a a master at solving problems. Uh, His longstanding problem, Concern obviously was those aging, growing uh, old inmates. And so he actually completely revamped and, you know, innovated a brand new hospice program within the Angola RJ Barrow Treatment Center. He did this in an effort to provide really the best. end of life experience possible for this gigantic population of inmates that were aging. And the first inmate patient was actually admitted in January of 98. Louisiana became just one of 11 states to even have a prison hospice program. Isn't that crazy? It's yeah, nuts. They, the other states, either they they just died where they died or they had to ship them out to different facilities. So ultimately, at the end of the day, about Burl starting this, I mean, he – like everything else he did in Angola, he made it more self-sufficient and, and actually saved us money. But the program structure 
um, and objectives consisted of five core goals. One was to provide quality end-of-life care. Two was honor the patient's support systems. Three was to address the patient's needs holistically, emphasize and um, palliation of physical, social, spiritual, and emotional suffering. Four was to assist the patient with activities considered life-affirming. And five was to maintain an end-of-life care system. And Angola's hospice is run on a daily basis by the interdisciplinary team, or the IDT, which consists of seven a seven-member team. The team creates a plan of action for each patient and ensures the maintenance of appropriate care. A common feature of prison hospice and an essential part of Angola's program is the participation of inmate volunteers who have a role in the creation of the hospice and the primary care. And the hospice program has a real impact on powerfully changing many of those who make it a part of their lives, particularly inmate volunteers. That's huge. Now, think about that now. You could be the sorriest motherfucker on the face of the earth, but, um, you know, people grow and they, and they change. But if you get assigned to this and you're looking at somebody who's dying, and it's your they didn't just pick anybody, dude. You had to be somebody, oh, one yeah. of the men and special. And then, but if you're in, involved all the way through burying this per- person and you go to care about them and you see them as they die slowly uh, or fast, however it may be, but you're, if you focus on that, then you're not raping and murdering, doing drugs, all the shit bad shit that goes on in prison. Amen. So that's uh that's powerful. Yeah, and and you know, working in that prison hospice program all the way up to today, folks, is one of the most, if not the most desirable jobs at Angola. Uh, they know how to think like hospice staff. They've had enough time to process what they've learned and experienced. You know, it takes a long time, y'all, to understand hospice and to think kind of like a hospice person. Now, when that program first started, one week into the training program, it's a word big, spread. Big training program, too. I yeah, it was. And, and you know, prisoners talk and word right. gets around quick. Mm-hmm. And so the, the word started to spread around the prison. And, I mean, everybody wanted to sign up for this program. Uh, every out camp was hearing about this information. Even those some 20 miles away from the treatment center were hearing about this. Inmates uh, uh, relaxing in the open rec rooms were now used to seeing the inmate volunteers and hospice instructors going in and out of training centers Mm -hmm. every day at 6 p.m. They had notebooks, clipboards, 100-page hospice volunteer manuals under their arms. And these inmates are looking at that, and they're thinking, wow, these guys – yeah, uh, are doing something with their right, lives, right. even if, even though they're behind the wire, important, right? And and the it's basically putting love in a place where there's no love. That's that's right. And after a week of that program kicking off, five or six prisoners a day were requesting to become part of the training. Mm-hmm. So, like Woody said, they don't just let anybody do this. They have a you know a security screening. Uh, these guys would be inmate leaders, and they were carefully selected by six of the most trusted and influential inmates in the community, including Wilbert Redu, who was the editor yep. of Angola's award-winning magazine, The Angolite. Right. Hugely respected. Right. Right. Probably the one of the most 
respected inmates ever at Angola, Wilbert right. Redo. I agree. And he was on that kind of like that board. Think of it like a board, y'all. Right. Uh, 25 inmates represented a cross-section of the population. There were Muslims, Catholics, Baptists. Uh, some of the the representatives from some of the most active clubs in Angola. Through those volunteers, this message filtered out, and it literally caused this program to, as Woody said, become one of the most successful yep. in the country, if not the world. And, again, I just keep going back to you got the most hardened criminals, and, again, I'll put convicts at Bloody Angola against any convict from anywhere in the world, and I guarantee you we have the worst, right? But these guys are looking, if they get a deception program, they're looking death in the face because for the first time they're actually caring about somebody. It's, one, it's like becoming a cop. It's one thing being in an academy. It's a whole different thing when you're on the street doing it. So yeah. they, they go through the training, but then they meet, like if I'm, becoming your hospice care person, right? Yeah. They, and I meet you for the first time. I'm like, holy shit, I'm not got all this training I'm going to try to use because I want to do good. And then, then I get my love grows for you and, and, and life happens. Absolutely. And, and one day we'll do a story y'all on just the hospice program and all, right. all the, you know, different things that it offers. But one of the programs, again, that Burl came brought into just the stratosphere of, of perfection really as far as prison hospice is concerned through the volunteers that the uh, it was a powerful message that went out to the whole prison population that the administration was finally uh, addressing an issue that had been discussed among not only those behind the wire but amongst many free people as well meaning that they you got five light sentences like holy shit, what's going to happen when it comes to my time? Because I'm going to die here. Yeah, and and the what's it? Am I just going to die in my bunk, slobbering on myself? It, but now, because of Burl Kane, uh, um, in in starting this hospice program, they knew that they were going to be shown love and compassion, probably like right. they never had, had in their entire lives in their final moments. Right? Yeah, that's right. And and that's. From the time they got diagnosed or needed hospice to all the way through the barrels, and we talked about that before, and and they gave them the honor and the dignity. That's another thing Burl started, but this in another episode. But so think about that. If you know, and I mean, we're all going to die, right? But I really don't care what happens to me right right now. But if you get diagnosed with hospice, you care. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. you're seeing it happening right. In hospice front of you. means you're going to die. There's nothing yeah. else we can do. Hospice, we're just going to give you the best quality we, we make can. you as comfortable as possible, right? And and with as much dignity as possible. And these convicts have never had that. Yeah, and they never had dignity in their whole life. And in in death and going through the process of death, Burl Cain established it and gave it to him, just like he did for Antonio James. And the people that were executed afterwards, and just like he gave Billy Cannon a second chance, and Billy Cannon rose to be a superstar. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't. I know we mentioned on a previous episode, but Billy Cannon was on one of the only people ever to be laid uh, at wake in in, in the, the Mar- assembly center. In the assembly yeah, center, Pete Maravich, and and so just. A beautiful thing. The story I'm about to tell you is super interesting, and that is 
the story of Barbara Walters Beige. Now, most of you probably have never heard of the color Barbara Walters Beige, but you have now. I hadn't heard until you told me about it. Barbara Walters, a few years ago, y'all, she did a show from the Lethal Injection Room in the prison. At Bloody Angola. At Bloody Angola. And in doing that pre-production prep work, she decided that the color of the paint on the wall did not fly to her skin tone. That's funny. That would bother me, and it bothered her. Oh, yeah. And so I'm pretty she, sure I've never thought about that. But Yeah. yeah but, but she's a you know world-famous career journalist. And, Very. Uh, uh, or, everybody knows who the hell Barbara Walters was. Warden Kane had actually mentioned that Barbara Walters was one of the two most favorite celebrities he ever had visiting Angola. He just absolutely loved Barbara loved Walters. Yeah. Probably someone that you meet and you, you can't help but love. Right. So. When she went to him and she said, now, this, uh, this color on this wall don't flatter my right. skin tone. Do you mind if I paint it? Mm-hmm. Burl Kane was like, oh, you can paint it if you want to. So she had her own people come in. They repainted the walls of the death chamber to go better with her skin at the right. prison. And the new death chamber color actually is informally referred to as Barbara Walters beige that's so cool and she actually is still to this day painted that color always Um, will be probably yeah and of course i just mentioned that one he was she was one of his favorite celebrities you may wonder who the other is and i don't know if you he's definitely a celebrity as he's world known but the reverend billy graham was his other so that's something that in these interviews uh, in the past, Warden Kane has mentioned is those two people were his favorites of all time as far as famous people yeah. that have visited. And in uh, not Barbara Walters, but uh, Billy Cannon that we talked about earlier today and the Reverend Billy Graham were both buried in caskets built by another program that Burl Kane started, which was the inmates. We talked about another episode yeah. of the inmates building the, these beautiful uh, handmade caskets. Yeah. And do you know who else was buried with it? And my mama um, sent this to me after she listened to that episode. Governor Ed, Edwin Edwards mm-hmm. was actually buried in, in one of those, but then his family oh, wow. got a lawsuit and they dug him up and they cremated him. But the, uh, <laughs> but the so just bring it before they were just burying the cardboard boxes. Yeah. Burl Kane is a stud. He is. He really is. So we're going to. We're going to go ahead and uh, and end this episode. And look, we still got exciting stuff to bring in. So much stuff, y'all. We're not going to cut, you know... Typically, we don't do these longer series, but right. look, this man, you this, can't tell a story it. in an hour. He deserves I mean, you just can't. You can't tell you, you in two can't, hours. You, you can't so, do justice. No. Right? And you it, can't. Even, even if, if we, we won't do 10 hours, but even then, you'll never know. That's right. The, the, the Everything that this man has had, how he has impacted so many people's lives. Hell, I was 21 years old when he impacted mine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So look forward to uh to coming back and checking it out next week as we do part three. We want to thank all of our patrons. Yes, patron members. We love you and appreciate you so much and I uh, hope you're enjoying all your perks and hey everybody that's listening to this episode, we love the feedback. Y- y'all been blowing it up. 
put your comments in. Yeah, and, and, please and, do. And, and we'd like to talk about it. If you have any questions about it also, we can, we can add that in. Absolutely. Right? Um, because you might be thinking of something that we hadn't thought of yet. That's right. So but please pa- pa- do that. Yeah, and Patreon members, you, you can go to Bloody Ang- um, or go to Patreon mm-hmm. uh, slash Bloody Angola. Yeah. Uh, check out all the different levels. You rock, and we love and appreciate you. You can be a Patreon member. We get it. Thank you for liking and listening and sharing. And y'all, our numbers grow every single month. It's, it's stupid. We're stupidly blessed. Yeah, we really are. And we want to thank our sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh. And so go to HelloFresh.com slash Bloody Angola. 16. 16. <laughs> <laughs> I had fresh last night. <laughs> I had my, my wife to cook two different ones. Man, that shit is good, bro. Man, yeah. I used to, my wife used to get excited when the, uh, when the Amazon driver pulled up. Now it's mm. when the HelloFresh. Yes, indeed. Hey, and you talked about when, when, um, they were sponsoring real life, real crime, it was a different code, but you and Mike were talking about, or you were talking about the lava cakes. Mm. And I said, well, yeah, I never, oh, so I never get any desserts from mine. I guess what? I'm digging in an ice box last night because I got kind of sick earlier, but then, then I uh, laid down and I got back up. Everybody got on the bed. I'm digging an ice box. I found some lava cakes. Oh, wow. Those are good. I, yeah, I'm oh. pretty sure she's saving herself. <laughs> well, you're a nicer man than me, Woody Everton. I'd have tore into that lava cake because they are good. Look, you get 16, 16 free meals plus free shipping by using uh, by going to Bloody Angola 16 at HelloFresh.com, yeah, and it's deserve, a hell of a deal. You deserve to give it a try because I'm a foodie. Jim's a foodie. We're from South Louisiana people, mm. and if we tell you it's good, it's not because they're paying us to tell you it's good. I'm telling you it's good because it's freaking good. That's right. So. And so we appreciate, love all of you, and until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace! I walk a straight line Shackled and chained Oh, and girdy There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle the Three.